Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I have Joa Spearman on the show. He's the CEO and founder of Localure, whose mission is to help people experience local wherever they go. After over seven years in a super crowded space, local recommendations, that has seen so much change and growth, I got to hear how Joa started the company, how the company has evolved over time, how they created a new business model in a really crowded space, and I believe even Beyonce and the Jenners happen to come up. I hope you enjoy it. Joa, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. So where I want to start is on what led you to starting your company, Localure. I know from my experience working in the travel space that figuring out how to make relevant local recommendations for lots of different travelers is really hard, and it's something that a lot of companies have tried and honestly failed at. Um, so I'm curious why you decided to enter that market and kind of what your unique perspective is on the problem. That's a great question. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. This is an incredibly difficult space. Many have tried and failed. And I think the thing that made me want to go into this space was my, my background. I grew up, you know, I grew up pretty poor and food stamps and the youngest of three boys, single mother. So travel really wasn't a part of my life as a, as a child. I, we didn't have the opportunity to, to, you know, do family vacations and do road trips and all these things. And so as I got older and I started working more and, and having more disposable income, travel became a more and more of a part of my life and my, my kind of lifelong education. And so for me, part of what motivated me to start a company in travel was the opportunity to, to unlock that education for other people. And then the more I dove into travel, the more I realized that so much of what's great about travel is the local part of it. You know, like when you find some new place in a new city that you've never been to, but it feels, it immediately makes you feel like you belong in that place and that it feels like you could live there. So yeah, so yeah, the, the, the space is really crowded, but for me, I felt like my purpose in going after this is so fundamentally different than so many other people who've, who would try to do something in this space where maybe travel was a part of their lives. Maybe they were coming at it for more from like a business sense than I think from like a genuine passion for unlocking that aha moment that travel and local offers to people the way that it, it does for me. For me, I, I just think that the input for why I'm doing this, it feels different than what I've seen from some of the other companies that have gone after this space where maybe it seemed like it was a trendy thing to do, especially I think after Foursquare's initial success, I think a lot of companies were like, oh, wow. At the time, I remember Foursquare looked the part of maybe being the next you know, Twitter or the next Facebook. And I think a lot of people entered the space in the early 2010s to try to go after that market. And I think a lot of the companies failed because they realized that you couldn't really gamify your way to success. You really had to be truly connected to the user and to the experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember a couple of times when I ran into this in my past, it was much more from a how do we distill down all the data that we have to make a relevant recommendation versus let me start with the people in market and do something that's really differentiated and, and true to that space. So I'm, I'm curious, can you tell a little, a little, us a little bit more about kind of like what your first product was? Because I know your business has changed a bunch along the way. Yeah. So it's funny. I was just uh, writing what's going to become probably like a, a blog or something about our kind of most recent pivot of sorts into a subscription model. But our first product, it, it really was simple. It was how do we help people experience local? And so we didn't have you know, a bunch of developers on hand. We, I, I think I raised about $125,000 pre-launch. So 
we didn't have a ton of money to go out and build some fancy apps. So we started with a, a mobile website actually. And at the time it was just in Austin, Texas where I'm based and about 12 of my friends, you know, and these are friends that are DJs, designers, musicians, et cetera. I asked them, Hey, can you recommend your favorite restaurants, bars, shops, et cetera, in Austin? And so we launched with those 12 people recommending, they each recommended about five places. So the, when Locular started on March 1st, 2013, all it was was a, a website at Locular.com where you saw about 60 different places in Austin. And the thing that worked about that was that South by Southwest started later that week. So then we started getting more content as well. And then also we ended up having about 5,000 people use the site in the first week because people were coming to South by Southwest and they were looking for, you know, where should I go? And, and so much of what we were trying to communicate to people during South by Southwest was, hey, South by Southwest is amazing. It's a big part of Austin, but it's not Austin. You know, if anything, it's like the world kind of imposing its will onto Austin as opposed to Austin kind of looking the part of this kind of, you know, formerly sleepy college town turned kind of tech metro area that it is now. And so we really were just trying to show that early value to the people coming to South by Southwest that, hey, we know things about Austin that the regular person coming to South by Southwest would never find if they didn't rely on locals. From there, how did you figure out how to grow that? Because I, I feel like so much of, at least from what you're saying, so much of that first product was successful because you already knew those people in that market and you knew that they were going to give those awesome recommendations that you know someone like me who's not from Austin would never be able to find. Yeah. So I think it was t- two things that we really relied on. One is I had a really robust personal network from different things that I've done before. So before Localer, I started the first ever fashion part of South by Southwest Festival. Before that, I I had a sneaker boutique in downtown Austin. I also had a social media consulting agency. So as a result, I I knew the tastemakers in Austin. And so by knowing these people, A, we were able to dive really deep in Austin in terms of the quality of the recommendations. And then second, we kind of had this saying at the early going of local of like locals, no locals, you know, like I have this tattoo on my, my right arm that says real recognize real. And it's a lyric from a Jay-Z song. And it, I kind of feel that way about local as well. Like locals, people who really know Austin, if they go to, let's say New York or London, they're probably going to be more likely to know someone who really knows New York or London than just anyone else as well. And so when we started expanding, in 2013, we picked the first four cities based on our traffic and also based on looking at kind of network effects like, hey, where do people from Austin come from? And so the first city we launched was Houston a couple of months later. And then after that, we said, okay, we are in Austin and Houston, but we don't want to be known as just this Texas thing. So where else do people want to travel to? And so then we started in California. We launched San Francisco and LA, and then we launched New York. So those first five cities were critical because we were basically going to those first few people in Austin saying, hey, who do you know in New York? Who do you know in LA? Who do you know in San Francisco? And that allowed us to really handpick the first usually the first 10 to 15 people in each of those cities. And these people, again, they're like that are like local influencers or tastemakers or that kind of thing. So it really helped us to kind of plant our flag as being just highly focused on quality and curation, as opposed to just going after the big numbers, because we, we knew we would never be able to compete with like a Yelp or a TripAdvisor with how many reviews we had or how much content we had. But we knew that we could probably try to win a battle for how, how much quality we had. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the challenges that or the questions that I have is kind of how did you prevent 
that expansion from diluting the quality. Because I think one of the things that a company like a TripAdvisor was really good at was they had every piece of information, but it was really hard to figure out how to make that specific to the person that we were talking to. So it sounds like you made a choice that the type of person you're providing recommendations for was more specific. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. We, we stopped this practice probably after our first year or so, but we even, when we started out, we used to actually do like negative recommendations too. So now when you go to local or it's, everything's positive. Everything's like, go here, go here, that kind of thing. But when we started, we did things like telling people like, don't go here. And we did that intentionally to compete with the bigger companies that had access to more data because we were trying to say, Hey, this site, like, you know, we even did a survey at one point and showed that for every 10 reviews for a place on Yelp, the person had the same amount of trust as looking at one recommendation on local or for the same place. So what we were trying to show is that it wasn't a, a game of who could have the most places, who could have the most data, but it was about who could get you to the answer quicker. And so in order to do that, we really said, we don't care if we don't have all 5,000 restaurants in this city on Localer. Let's make sure we have the best 50. As a result of that, it allowed us to expand, but not feeling like we were constantly behind in terms of being able to deliver quality. Like we, we really, when we launched the city, we said, okay, imagine in the best thing you can have for any city you visit is a friend that lives there right? Because then that friend will tell you where to go, where to eat, all that stuff. And we said, okay, how can we be like that? And what we netted out with was that, you know, if you had a friend in a city, that friend would not recommend 5,000 or 500, maybe even 50 places to you. They'd probably recommend three to five places. And so we said, okay, that's the minimum. So we now can launch a city with five places because that is what's going to make it feel like you have a friend there, someone that you trust, telling you about five places they love as opposed to going weaving through this site that's full of clutter and full of content that makes you have to still figure out which ones are the best ones. Yeah. I think one of the things I always think about is the email that's been passed around a friend group. You know, once one person goes to whatever city and starts to collect the their curated list of things and then how that's that's like the number one competitor to this type of app is, you know, oh, I've got my friend's friend's friend Mexico City itinerary. Yeah. And we I mean and honestly, we we always knew that there there's kind of two ends, right? There's on one end of, of travel, there's tourism. And the very nature of tourism in a lot of ways is that you you want a paved road. You want someone telling you, go to these places, these are the top places, then done. And then on the other end of that is this person who's willing to spend a lot of time to explore and do their own discovery. So that's the person who they're going to go out of their way to meet a local. They're going to talk to a bartender or whatever. And so what we wanted to do was be closer to that person, the person who's willing to do that work. And so, so a lot of times our localers have their own Google spreadsheets or whatever, or they have maps that they've created and things like that, that they share. And that's fine. Like, even though it is competition for people to do that in a lot of ways, we feel like the more of the people from the tourism world that can kind of have their own enlightenment of, oh, wow, like I've been missing out on all these amazing authentic experiences by traveling the way that I've done in the past and kind of convert over to, you know what, from now on, I'm going to experience local. And part of what that means is I'm going to start supporting locally owned restaurants, locally owned businesses. I'm going to start 
going off the beaten path, that's the person who, when they discover Locular, they have like this light bulb moment and they're like, wow, this is, this is life-changing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then take me through how the business has evolved, because I know that you mentioned earlier that you're now a subscription model. So I'm curious how you went from sort of curated hyper-local recommendations to where you are today. Yeah, I would say we've had, you know, I, I would probably say we've had four stages. I think the first stage was from our launch through probably through probably the early part of, or probably the end of 2014. And that's where we, in essence, we're focused on just trying to scratch and claw our way toward product market fit and validating this concept. It's funny looking back because when we first started in Austin, you know, we had this successful run during South by Southwest and I started pitching investors in Silicon Valley and they were, they, they literally were like, oh, is this an Austin thing? You know, because Austin's known as like this weird local place. And they're like, oh, is this an Austin thing? And then we expanded to more cities and they're like, oh, is this a millennial thing? And I said, no, it's, and then we, you know, so we've always had to face this, this thing of like, oh, is this, this, is this. And, you know, and so our first phase was really just validating that like, no, this is something that is bigger than Austin. So we expanded from Austin to about, in our first few years, we expanded to about 12 major U.S. cities. And then the next stage was we finally launched our iPhone app in 2015. Basically, we went, we spent about two years really heads down on the app and expanding in order to get, bring more value to the app users. Because the, one of the main critiques in that time was, oh, they're, this is great, but they're only in these 12 cities. They're only in these 15 cities. They're only in these 20 cities. They're only in these 25 cities. And so we, we grew from basically 12 cities to about 80 cities in that period. So we expanded a lot and mostly to service the value to the app. And then in 2017, early 2017, I had this, this crazy idea of doing a weird pivot away from the app and the site towards a print magazine. We actually started doing a print magazine. We did seven issues of it from 2017 through the early part of, of this year, actually. And I think what that was about was, okay, now we have this reach, right? We're we, at that point, we were in a, over a hundred cities and we wanted to get back to kind of to our roots of saying, Hey, like, yes, we have all these cities. Now we're global. We're in all these continents and all these countries, but we want to still remind you that we're still focused on curation and quality and authenticity. And so the print magazine became the form of us showing that. And while that happened, brands started reaching out to us because they saw, okay, now we had the scale that they needed earlier, but we also had the focus on authenticity and curation that they wanted for their content. And so we ended up partnering with brands like JetBlue, Nike, Lyft, Match.com, because they wanted the kind of two-headed content uh, partner of like one focused on scale and being in all the places, and then one focused on quality and, and authenticity and saying the right thing. So that was kind of our, our most recent phase. And then now on June 1st, we launched our first ever subscription product. So we basically killed the old version of the website where you could see all the 180 cities we're in and I'll get all the content for free. And we did that because now we've served 5 million travelers. We've partnered with all these brands and we feel like we offer such a unique type of value to a traveler that we don't want to compete with the free service where it's really a numbers game of how many millions of reviews or contributors they have. We want to show that we're really focused on authenticity and curation and enhancing your, your trips through local insight that only our community can provide. And so now you have to be a subscriber in order to, in essence, request itineraries or recommendations for these 180 plus cities that we're in around the world. Honestly, last week was probably my busiest week of the year so far, even with COVID, because we launched a road trips guide 
that's intended to help people, you know, that, that they can't maybe fly across the country, fly halfway around the world, but they can't take a road trip to Yosemite or to New England or whatever. So that's, that's been a big boon. And actually I'm, I'm about to type something up for my investors saying that two months of the subscription service, we've generated more revenue than three years of doing the magazine. That's crazy. Yeah, I was. It's so interesting because I think everyone defaults to well, you have to have like an ad supported model, or it has to be referral revenue from bookings or something. It's just so interesting that you decided to to stay away from that area and instead sort of say, no, actually, my content is worth it, and people are going to pay. Yeah, I mean, I think that the pandemic offers two things. I think one is it's a chance for us to make a pivot. While not as many people are paying attention, I think already globally, we're seeing that, you know, most travel companies are down, you know, whether that's 30% or some is reporting 80% down. So you're getting less revenue, you're getting less traffic. So there's less people paying attention to what you're doing. And I think, on the other hand, the people that are paying attention to you are the people who really travel is a big part of their lives. And so they really value it. And so the subscription pivot was really about tapping deeper into that 20%. So we're not thinking so much about the people who are using lowclear.com, the old version. We're thinking more about the people who every single month, COVID or no COVID, they are still going to our app looking for recommendations. And so now we have a subscription service to, to really focus on them. Are you still partnering with brands as well? We are. We are. We um are actually in the middle of doing some continuing work with Nike. That work is kind of more about their product than ours, but it's leaning into our the insights that our community provides to help them. We have been working with a brand called RV Share. That's a leading platform to book RV rentals. So obviously that fits in really nicely with our focus on road trips. So we've, we've still found ways to partner with brands. And I think the reason why we still offer value to them is because we have spent this last seven years building this this community that no one else has. Like whether you're TripAdvisor, Yelp, there's no company in the world that has 600 to 1,000 local tastemakers. I mean, I'm not talking about just people willing to go on a website and check in somewhere or write a review, but these are people who, you know, on average, they have 8,000 followers on Instagram. So they're not, they're, they're not like the Jenners or, you know, with hundreds of millions of followers, but these are people who, who what I say is these are people who influence the influencers. So if you ever see, for example, let's say if Beyonce posts something, you know, for everything that Beyonce posts, there's probably one or two people who have like five to 10,000 followers who are helping her figure out what to post. And that's the kind of person that we have influencing our, our content in, in our community. And do you think that you were able to build that community because your like your background is different and you have a much different perspective on how to do this type of thing? Because it, it like when you when you hear the story, you know hindsight hindsight's twenty twenty. Like hearing you take us through the story, it makes a ton of sense on how you were able to make those pivots. But even just trying to figure out like how someone would have known to start that way, I'm not sure how they would have done that without your background. I fully agree. I mean, you know, I I'm not Ivy League educated. I don't live in Silicon Valley. I am not an engineer. I didn't work at Google, you know, that type of thing. So in a lot of ways, I have the opposite kind of background to most of the other people who've started this type of company in this type of space, because my background is not as someone approaching it from a data perspective or someone approaching it from a technical engineering perspective, but someone approaching it from a I'm approaching it from a content perspective. You know, like I am, I fit the profile of a localer. I am someone who, I'm not this mega social media influencer, but I, I am highly influential locally. Like in Austin, people know me. 
but you, you know, you leave Austin and not as many people know me, but in Austin, you know, I would probably say there probably aren't three people in Austin who could give you a better set of recommendations for what to do in Austin. So I kind of fit the profile of the kind of contributor you want. And, you know, it's funny because we look at these marketplace companies, like look, look at a company like Airbnb or Uber or these marketplace companies. And what you see is that you have companies like Airbnb where those guys, they did rent out their, their apartment. That was how they actually started the business and how they got the idea. And then you have companies like Uber where they, those guys, they were, you know, there was a bunch of millionaires basically sitting in a room, Travis Kalanick and Garrett Camp and those guys. What they wanted was a black car service, right? So on Uber's end, what you have is people who they represented the demand side. So they solved the problem by creating a marketplace to solve the demand side by creating a lot of supply through the drivers. But as a result, Uber as a business doesn't have a great brand as connecting and representing its drivers, right? Like if you look at the strength of their business, it's not like, you know, you go to an Uber driver and they're, they're not like raving about the company, right? It's more like there's a way for them to pay their bills. And then you look at Airbnb, on the other hand, at least until recently, they had a great community of their host because the, the founders could relate to the host experience. And so regardless of what kind of marketplace you're building, you need to be able to identify with one side of the marketplace. And for me, I, I very much identify with both the supply and the demand. I'm the person that gives the recommendations to someone. And I'm also the person who only wants the local recommendations rather than the tourist stuff. So, so I think being able to represent and identify with at least one side, if not both sides of the marketplace has, has helped us. And I think that that's what's new about what local has done versus our previous competitors that tried in this space. I think a lot of them didn't identify with the content creators because they weren't actual content creators. And then I think some of the others, they were more approaching it from like a data technical standpoint about how do we let tech solve this problem rather than how do we find a way to solve a, a human problem with a human solution. Do you think that founders are more effective when they have that emotional connection to the problem that they're solving? I think about this a lot with with my network. There's a lot of people that want to be entrepreneurs, but maybe they don't have an idea and then they come across an idea and they're like, okay, this is what I'm going to go try to solve. But I'm wondering if, if you think that a lot of the success that you've had in the, and the examples you're giving is because of that initial sort of like founder problem connection. Yeah. You know, what I would say is you really need to find something that you're uniquely equipped to solve. So it needs to go even beyond whether or not you have a connection to it, like whether or not you've had some aha moment of a problem that you had and or an experience that you had. And you're like, oh, this would be a great idea for this market or this thing. I think it needs to be something where when you look at your background, your resume, your life experiences, it says, it screams to you, I can do this. And so for me, when I look at what Locular looks like today, it's still screaming to me, like, this is yours, Joa. Like, this is this is for you to solve because out of the thousands and thousands of people that I've come across in my life, there aren't even a handful of people that I think could step into the role that I have with this company and do it because their their experiences don't provide the same amount of breadth as mine. And so I think that's an important ingredient too, is really being very objective about your experience and what your experience lends itself to. Like, would I create a search engine? No, that's not really something that I think I would be uniquely equipped to solve. Would I create something in the hardware space? I don't think so either, you know, but, but if I had a different background, perhaps those would be more suited for me than local. Yeah, that makes sense. So 
I could talk about this all day, but we're running out of time. So I'm just curious, like what you've, you've started and been an entrepreneur for, it seems like your whole life. So like, what's some advice that you would give to some other people who are, you know, who want to be entrepreneurs, but maybe don't fit the sort of typical Ivy League, Silicon Valley backgrounds? Yeah. I think the biggest thing is, and, and this is, this speaks to what I think has been one of the downsides of what's happened in tech in Silicon Valley in the last five years is there's been this kind of popularization of being a founder, being an entrepreneur. And I think that's great because I think it's, it's awesome if people pursue their passions and go after it on their own. But I think that entrepreneurs really need to put themselves in a service mode. I think it's, it's not about being your own boss and being a founder, having a business card, all this stuff. It's really about if you find a problem, putting all your attention, time and energy around, behind serving that problem and staying in service mode. So even me, I'm seven and a half years into Logler. And the thing that's kept me going is I still have a connection to wanting to serve this problem. Really, you're in the service industry. And the more that you can serve the problem you're trying to solve, as opposed to just trying to leverage the problem to you know get wealthy or get attention or fame or whatever, I think that that's really critical. And, you know, even when I look at, you know, one of the people that I really respect, I'm, I'm not like, I've never been the biggest Foursquare user, never was, but I really respect Dennis Crowley, the founder of Foursquare, because he started a company before Foursquare called Dodgeball that was kind of a location-based app as well. And he ended up selling it to Google. And a lot for a lot of people, they'd be like, oh, well, you sold your company to Google, you made money, like you should be happy. But he was really upset about it because he felt like he had failed, not just failed like as an entrepreneur, but he felt like he, he failed to solve the problem. And so right after he sold to Google and he finished out his earnout or whatever, he went back to the problem and he started Foursquare. And I really commend someone who's, he's put, you know, the better part of 15 years of his life toward this problem that he really cares about, which is around location-based content and services. And so I really think that any aspiring entrepreneur, it's not just about finding a problem you want to solve. It's not just about seeing that you're uniquely equipped, but it's also about putting on that hat that says, I am in service of this problem and I'm going to do whatever this problem requires me to do, whether that's, you know, being an intern <laughs> or basically for your company, not paying yourself as I haven't for many years or finding the right team and building the right team, finding the right people to help you solve the problem rather than thinking you can do it all yourself. Yeah. I love that advice. I think it's so easy to fall into the trap of, you know, I'm, I should be a founder because I want to be cool. I definitely have seen that in, in my my background. People wanting to go into product because it's like the mini CEO job, and I think I feel like people who do that end up washing out because it it's not glamorous and it takes a lot of like these types of things take a lot of work. And so if you're just in it because you want to, you know, get more followers on Twitter, it's probably not going to work out for you. But <laughs> I agree. All right. So one last question, Joa. I'm just curious. Do you have any recommendations on like books or podcasts or things that that either have helped you in your journey or that you're reading now or listening to that are like inspiring you to kind of stick with it? There's one book in particular that I really recommend. There's an author named Ryan Holiday. He wrote a book called The Obstacle is the Way. I absolutely love that book. I rave about the book. It's a short little read, but it's it's really helped me in, in some of the tough moments of Localer. Like even I had 
I had a contentious relationship with one of my investors at one point a few years ago, and I was reading that book at the same time. And the book kind of opened my eyes to this idea that, hey, every time this investor is calling me or emailing me, I shouldn't be annoyed, but I should realize that this person just wants more information. And maybe he has he's somewhat fearful of what's happening because he doesn't have all this information. So as a result of that, I ended up starting what now is I used to do quarterly investor updates, and now I do monthly. And sometimes I email my investors twice a month, if not three times. So I, I just I, I responded to that after reading that book by just giving more clarity, more information, more transparency. And I think it's just I think that that book just does a great job of helping entrepreneurs and any people, honestly, not even just entrepreneurs, but people understand that things aren't always binary. It's not always I can do this or I can do that. Sometimes. There is this other way that you're choosing not to see because you're, you want to make it like a seem like a simple choice. And that thing is oftentimes the, the actual path that you should take. The instance I was just talking about, for example, one idea was, oh, I can, I can respond to my investor when he calls me or I cannot. And it was very binary. And then what I realized is, actually, no, it's not even about him. It's about all my investors and me as a founder being more transparent. So let me just do these updates. And so now it's not about a one-to-one relationship, whether or not I want to have that. It's more about me having a point of view of being transparent for all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I love his work. I think I should know this. Did he write the book on ego as well? I think yes. I read his other book. Yeah, which I loved. That was a recommendation I got from from our founders at Drift that I thought was awesome and a little bit similar, kind of like stoic. That's totally what it is. It's totally stoic. It's And I think as an entrepreneur, you're naturally going to have chaos. I'm so thankful because I would say when I started Localer, the chaos was every day. And then maybe by the second year, it was every few weeks. And then by the third or fourth year, it was every couple of months. And then more recently, it's been every few months. Now the chaos is like maybe once or twice a year. Once or twice a year, there's something that gets tossed on my plate that is like, I need a lot of time, energy, and, and mental acuity to be able to solve it. And like COVID is one of those things, you know? As a result of COVID, we've, we've pivoted into the subscription thing. And like I said, we've we, it's so far, it's been really a great move for us. And I think it's going to be really fruitful long-term. And so I think that as an entrepreneur, you just have to brace for that chaos and then learn, practice a certain degree of stoicism. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's true even as just a, not a founder, but an employee of a startup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think normalizing talking about that chaos and the the emotional upheaval that it, that it, you can have at a startup is super important. Agreed. I mean, these are unprecedented times, especially. So all the startups that were, that seemed like they were red hot and just taken over the world in January of this year, like Airbnb, are in a totally different place. Here we are eight months later, right? So it's really important that people don't let themselves get too attached to any one moment of where, where the startup is. But again, be in service mode, attach yourself to the problem. So it's not like the problem went away because COVID presented itself, but maybe you lost some of your teammates. Maybe you know there was a layoff. Maybe you got some pay cuts, but that doesn't change the problem and whether or not you're attached to it. Yeah. I love that. Well, Joe, I think we're out of time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was awesome. I really appreciate you taking some time. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to hearing it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button, drop me a six-star only review, and let me know what you think. Or if you have a topic you'd want me to cover, a guest I should interview, send me a note at maggie at drift.com. Super appreciate everyone for listening. Thanks. Thanks.